And then the second part will come a little bit later. So before Scott comes up and does some announcements and we have some prayers, Thomas is going to come and read the first section of Bible reading for us. So it's Judges 17, verse 1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse. I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So, she, so he returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image of, an, of the idol and they were put in Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, Where are you from? I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I am looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now know that the Lord will be now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In those days Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent, out, sent five warriors from Zorah and Ishtael to spy out the land to explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told him, Go explore the land. The men go explore the land. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me, and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered him, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish, 
where they saw the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, unsuspecting and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were, pro they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtel, their brothers asked them, how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We have seen that the land is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go over there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. Then the 600 men from the clan of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtal. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Mahanadan to this day. From there they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, a carved image, and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance to the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, and other household gods, and the cast idol, while the, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. When these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. He took the ephod and the other household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us or some hot-tempered men will attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. <coughs> then they took what Micah had made, and his priest, and went on to Laish against, against a peaceful and unsuspecting people. They attacked them with a the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them, because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites built, rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their forefather Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city itself used to be, La used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idols Micah had made.
all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for, um, for giving us your word. And uh, uh, particularly through these uh, narrative stories of the Old Testament, as we can see how uh, Israel related with you or didn't relate with you. And Father, we pray that now as we look at your word, you give us understanding by your spirit and give us hearts that uh, are flexible, that uh, we would uh, be challenged by your word and that we would change as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, religious idols are not so obvious in Australia as they are in other parts of the world. But uh, if you go to places where Buddhism or Hinduism is strong, uh, you will find many, many people who on a regular basis bow down uh, in worship uh, before blocks of stone and metal and wood. Why do people worship idols? Uh, is it ignorance? Is it um, superstition? Is it tradition? It's what they've been taught to do. Why do people worship idols? It's often because people think, if I worship this idol or the spiritual reality that it's supposed to represent, if I worship this idol, then I will be safe, uh, I will be enriched, I will be um, prosperous. Um, these are the reasons people worship idols. But we don't have to actually look overseas uh, to find religious idols, do we? Uh, some people have pictures of Jesus, um, even in their homes. Pictures which they imagine Jesus to be like, although we don't have any idea what Jesus... He, he was Middle Eastern, he probably didn't have blonde hair, he was Middle Eastern... Uh, and people say that they've got these pictures and they say, when I look at the picture, it helps me to pray. Or when I gaze at a crucifix, it helps me to truly worship God. Even worse is the superstition. Like um, people... <clears throat> think if, if I hang a cross around the rearview rear mirror in my car, I'm not going to need to take out comprehensive insurance. Superstition. People uh, look to these, these Christianized religious objects uh, for life, for protection, for enrichment. Now, idolatry was a big problem in Israel during the time of the judges. But not all of the idols were blocks of stone with the name Molech or the name Baal or the name Asherah engraved on them. For they're also idols that had the name Yahweh, the true God, uh, on their little, little brass plaque on the idol. And this is an issue which we discover in, uh, in Judges chapters 17 and 18, so can I ask you to have that open up in your Bibles? And of course, uh, there's an outline of the talk in your bulletins as well. Now, Judges chapter 17, it's kind of like the literary, literary equivalent of driving along a bitumen road and you suddenly hit the gravel. 
You really notice it when that happens, don't you? And uh, you feel that straight away. And we feel it when we read through the book of Judges because up until now, uh, it's, all, it's been about the whole of Israel um, having idols. But chapter 17, it changes because it's now about just one family and their idolatry and particularly one man. Can I get you to look at chapter 17? I'm going to read from verses 1 to 4 just to recap. Now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the, the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. How about that, eh? Uh, here is a man, his name is Micah, and he's a thief. In fact, he ripped off his own mum, uh, stole some silver from her, and when she realised that the family silver supply had been raided, she, she called down a curse on whoever it was who stole it, and he's apparently heard that she's called down a curse, and so he's in fear of that, and he fesses up. He owns up. And he goes to his mum and he, he gives the silver back. Now, you, you think she'd be cranky with him. Uh, well, she's not cranky. In fact, she's just pleased to get the silver back. She's so pleased that she solemnly consecrates her silver to the Lord. How about that? She sounds like a very godly woman, doesn't she? I mean, very forgiving of her son, um, and, uh, and she wants to consecrate her silver to the Lord, but why does she want to do that? So that Micah will make a carved image and a cast idol. Very religious, but she's actually an idolater, isn't she? And she passes that uh, idolatry down the generations because she passed her idolatry on to her own son who it seems that he's a little bit of a connoisseur of religious objects himself, a bit of a collector. Check out what he, what he already has in his house in verse 5. He's got his own shrine. He's got an ephod, which is like a priestly garment. He's got, he's got his own homemade idols, plus he has installed his own son as a priest. He probably also had a nice display cabinet for his mother's new idols as well. Now, can you think of any of God's laws that this man Micah is breaking? Any laws that you can think of that he's breaking? Well, how about the second commandment? How about that, eh? The second commandment in, in Exodus chapter 20, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. What about, secondly, the command that all... What tribe should all priests come from, by the way? Does anyone remember? They should all come from the tribe of Levi. 
Well, what about his son? Does his son come from the tribe of... No, he comes from this, the tribe of Ephraim. So there's another one. And thirdly, there was only one place uh, where, uh, of worship and that was to be the tabernacle, which at that time was in Shiloh. But Micah, he had his own convenience store religion with his own personal priest. He thought he had it made. And then things from his perspective got even better for Micah because in verse 7, a young traveller from the tribe of Levi turned up at Micah's place looking for a place to live. How about that? What do they say? Carp diem. Seize the day. Micah saw his moment here and he, he offered this Levite a job as his household priest. Put his son out of business, installed the Levite as his priest and all for the bargain basement price of 10 shekels of silver a year plus board. Micah could not have been happier. Check it at verse 13. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Why would the Lord be good to him? <laughs> Was it because the Lord is faithful to his covenant promises? Was it because Micah was a godly and obedient man? Who, No. Why would God be good to him? Because Micah now had his own personal Levitical priest on the payroll. Like a good luck charm with flesh and blood. It looks godly, but it's actually idolatry. You see, idolatry is about having God in our pocket. That, uh, that is, instead of God ruling us, we think that we can somehow control him. If I surround myself with the right religious objects, with the right religious ceremonies, with the right, then God will do for me whatever I want. And he requires nothing from me in return. Now, Micah was not the only one who had this good luck charm attitude towards God. In chapter 18, the, the plot thickens because of the idolatry of one tribe, and that is the tribe of Dan. Now, uh, we need to recap here. A little bit of background information might be helpful. Remember that when Israel entered the Promised Land, that uh, each of the tribes was uh, given their own uh, allotment, their own uh, slice of real estate, and uh, they were supposed to move into their allotment and to drive out the inhabitants. Uh, the inhabitants were being judged because of their own idolatry. They were to drive out the inhabitants and settle the land. The Danites were given a, a plot of land which is in the uh, southwest of um, the Promised Land uh, where the Amorite people lived. But... What we saw in Judges chapter 1, in verse 34, is that when they, the, the tribe of Dan went into this plot of land, their allotment, uh, they were a bit fearful of the Danites, uh, of, of the Amorites. And they didn't actually trust that God would be with them, that God would drive out the Amorites, uh, that he would win the victory. 
And so instead of attacking the Amorites in the, in the plains, they retreated into the hill country. Have a look at uh, chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Well, Israel's always had king. The Lord God is their king, but they were living as if they had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribe of Israel. Well, whose fault is that? And so the Danites sent five warriors from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all of the clans and they told them, go and explore the land. Seems that apparently they got a bit fed up of living in the hills. It's pretty hard to farm hills. But instead of having another crack at the Amorites, as God wanted, they, uh, in a scene which is reminiscent of uh, um, Moses spending, sending spies into the Promised Land, uh, they actually sent out spies in search of greener pastures. They sent out spies to look for some place outside of the allotment that God had given them, some place where the, where the inhabitants were so weak that um, the Danites wouldn't need to depend on God. They could actually defeat them with their own strength. Verse 7. So the five men left and came to Laish. Now Laish is way up north, um, right at the northern extremity of, um, of, of Israel. Uh, just inland from Sidon. The five men left and came to Laish where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, unsuspecting and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and they had no relationship with anyone else, so they couldn't call for help. What do you call the people of Laish? I'd call them sitting ducks, wouldn't you? Absolute sitting ducks. Uh, verse 27 describes the people of Laish as being peaceful and unsuspecting. You get the idea that the author of Judges has actually uh, got, a, got some compassion for these people. Now, this was great ungodliness. The town of Laish was nowhere near the land that God had given to the tribe of Dan. Uh, they had no mandate from God uh, to go to war against the people of Laish, but they did. Now, the question, therefore, is how does this story of the Danites intersect with the story of Micah? Well, during their travels, the five, five spies had to uh, pass through uh, the land of Ephraim where Micah lived. And when they did so, they came across Micah and his little personal temple. So when the army went uh, marching in to invade Laish, they decided to detour past Micah's place and they pick up some... Um, religious help along the way. See, even though the military operation itself was sinful, they still wanted the blessing of God. And so a few religious good luck charms might just come in handy. 
So in verses 18 through to 21, the army turned up at Micah's place. And what did they do? Uh, Well, in the same way that Micah had stolen his mum's silver, the Danites stole Micah's idols. So in verses 18 to 21, um, that's what they did. And then, to add salt to the wound, they made a better offer to his priest. Check that out, verse 19. Uh, Verse 19... Uh, where are we? Yeah, verse 19, they, they answered the priest. See, the priest says, well, what are you guys doing here? And they answered the priest, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? And then the priest was glad. He was thrilled to bits. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image, and he went along with the people. Um, putting their little children, their livestock and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and they left. Now, how would you describe this priest? Man of great integrity? Man of faithfulness? How about a priest with a price? (laughs) You see, false religion always believes that it can buy its ministers. And false ministers are are always happy to sell their services to the highest bidder. False ministers will only ever take up a ministry appointments which advance their career. So, you know, why would you want to serve just one family? Why don't you have a ministry to a whole tribe of Israel? That's pretty appealing stuff for an ambitious priest. And by accepting these private employment deals, this so-called priest, well, he knew exactly who paid his stipend, didn't he? And would dance to whatever tune they called. Would tell them what their itching ears wanted to hear. Does God want us to go and invade Laish? Oh, yeah, of course. Go, do it. It's God's will. Whereas true ministers preach God's word, they expose sin, they warn of judgment, and they call for repentance, and they do so without fear and without favour. You know, uh, when Cassie and I were in our 20s, in the first week of my appointment to uh, to my first church, uh, I was introduced to a member of the congregation with these words. Uh, Scott, this is Mr, let's call him Smith. He donated $20,000 to renovate the house that you're living in. And I thought, thanks. I really would have preferred not to have known that so that my ministry would not be clouded by a sense of indebtedness to him for the flash new kitchen and the new bathroom and all of the new carpet. And Of course, I didn't allow it to cloud my ministry, but it has the potential to do so. Uh, One day, after a church service, a man... Um, came and spoke to me and he slipped an envelope into my shirt pocket. I didn't pay too much attention to that and I went, went home. I opened it up, it was full of cash. Later that week, I had to confront that man and challenge him uh, because of his sinful behaviour towards his own wife. I did that. But it was just made a little bit harder by the fact that he'd sl- slipped some cash 
in my pocket. I don't accept cash in my pocket anymore <laughs> for that sort of reason. Now, none of this would have bothered the Danites or their so-called priest. The Danites had their token religious leader and their good luck charms so that they felt safe and they felt blessed without the need to truly have to deal with God. It's folk religion. And in our culture, there's a lot of people who have moved beyond folk religion to the kind of no religion at all category. Um, but, I, but there are remnants, significant remnants of it. Uh, and, I, and I believe also that the no religion at all category uh, isn't as um, absolute as um, people say it is of themselves. I notice at the funerals of non-Christians that uh, people still want to have a church, they still want to have a minister in order to give assurance that all is well and that the person is now in heaven. Even though they may themselves display no Christian faith at all and the person who's passed away has never given any evidence of any Christian faith. Although in our case it gives us great opportunity to share with people about Jesus rather than give false assurances, which sadly many ministers do. But this idea that the right ceremonies by a holy man in a holy place will mean that all will be, be well in this world and in the next, that's just folk religion. It's superstition with a Christian coating. It's hellish. And it's like the Danites. Chapter 18, verse 27. Uh, verse 27. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against a peaceful and unsuspecting people. They attacked them with the sword and burnt down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. They had no relationship with God. God had nothing to do with this, despite the assurances of the priest. And it had huge consequences for Israel, massive consequences for Israel. They renamed the city as Dan. But look what happened next in verse 30. In verse 30, there the Danites set up for themselves the idols. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, no less, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idols that Micah had made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. This idolatry infected the whole community so that the, the city of Dan actually became a focal point for false worship in Israel for centuries. You know, later on, remember after uh, Solomon died that, uh, when his son uh, Rehoboam didn't get on well with the people and uh, another guy called Jeroboam um, <clears throat> led a rebellion and 
a nation split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of, of Judah. Well, when Israel split, split in two, in the northern kingdom, a golden calf idol was set up in Dan with the express purpose so as to that people would worship God, worship Yahweh there through the golden calf idol instead of travelling to Jerusalem to worship God in his true temple. Eventually, Dan became part of the reason that in 732 BC that God allowed the Assyrians to invade the land of Israel, to defeat Israel and to take Israel into captivity, the very point that is alluded to uh, in verse 30 of our passage today. The captivity into Assyria. Massive consequences which started with one family worshipping God through idols. Now, the irony of this passage is that the name Micah has a meaning. It means Yahweh the incomparable. God the incomparable. How about that? I mean, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40 asks this question, to whom will you compare God? With what image will you compare him to? An idol? Lift up your eyes, look at the heavens above, who created all of these? The man Micah had ignored the very meaning of his own name by not just comparing, but actually exchanging the glory of the, of the almighty God for idols, for images, made to look like men and animals and reptiles, as Paul says in Romans 1. Now, how do we truly relate to God? Well, next, next Monday is Christmas Day when we especially remember that the God of the universe, the God to whom we lift up our eyes and look at the heavens and wonder who it is who has created all of those, these things, we especially remember that that one, that the God of the universe actually became one of us. In Colossians chapter 1, it's said of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all of creation, that by him and for him and through him all things have been made. That Jesus is God. You want to have an image of God? Well, you don't need a block of stone or a block of wood or a picture or a crucifix. Jesus himself. Jesus himself. And so if, we, if Jesus is God then how can we truly know Jesus? We don't need pictures or statues or objects. Everything which we need to know about Jesus is found as we read God's word, who he is, what he's done for us on the cross and what it means to trust, to love and to serve him. The problem is that 
despite the second commandment, many church buildings are filled with man-made images which are supposed to help people to relate to God. Statues, windows, windows with so-called pictures of Jesus and crucifixes. Sometimes beautiful, often idols. How do we know when a religious object has become an idol to someone? How do we know? Well, try taking it away, you'll soon know. (laughs) But it's when someone says, that object, it helps me to worship God. Uh, Behind me there's a screen, behind the screen there is a cross. It's not even like the cross that Jesus died on. It's got a round circle in it. It's, it's It's a Celtic thing, actually. Many years ago, when we erected the screen there, uh, a man uh, spoke to me and he said, I need to be able to see the cross. I worship God. It helps me to worship God. Because the problem was he couldn't see it behind the screen. Sometime later, I remember speaking to him just days before he died wanting to help him to get to know Jesus and get to know God and to have some assurance, some true assurance of what might happen to what would happen to him after he died and what it means to actually put your trust in Jesus. But like that screen blocks that cross, he had a screen blocking what I was saying. And as far as I could tell, he went to his death without actually trusting in Jesus, although he needed the cross. It's terribly sad, isn't it? That's idolatry. You know, when the Danites stole Micah's idols, he was furious. He was cranky. He, he, he chased after them with a few of his own men to fight them and to get it back and the, the Danites turned around to him and they said to him, why are you so upset? <laughs> and he said to them, because you've taken the gods that I made. You've taken my priest. And then in a statement that exposes the blackness and darkness of his heart, he says, what else do I have? Indeed, what else did he have? Because stripped of his aids to worship was exposed the reality that he did not actually have God. But we do. And we can trust. We can know that if we trust in Jesus, that we actually have the one who is truly the image of the invisible God. And so we trust in him, not in any idols. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us uh, with perfection in the person of your Son, our Lord and Saviour Jesus, who is uh, your very image. He is God become flesh. 
We pray, Lord God, that we would never put our trust in anything or anyone else other than your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Purify us, we pray, and cleanse our heart of all idolatrous thinking and all idolatrous desires that we might worship you in spirit and in truth through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.